of the crowd already. You're great. And the difference between you and the students is they're 18 to 22-year-olds. You can figure out what makes you different after that, but I don't think we're a whole lot different. Okay, so what I want to start all of us thinking about is brain health. And I want to take this hour-ish time that I have and convince you that what you put in really does matter. And I know you want me to talk about some herbs that might help with your memory, right? Just tell me what to take and I'll take it and I'll feel better. I'm not gonna do that. To the very end, I'll mention a few. But what I want you to try to wrap yourself around is it does matter what you eat. If I asked any of you what makes the difference for heart health, I know you could name some things, right? Because you're all really thinking about that. We have much of our lives, we try to get our kids to do that. So brain food, it really is real and it does matter. I think it's important that we just also consider what goes on as far as how our brain ages. Uh, our, during gestation, childhood, adolescence, uh, just to be able to wrap ourselves around, just embrace that we can't stay the same. We're gonna age, it's inevitable. And through the years that we maybe, you know, as our brain grows and it's close to adult weight by a young age of six and we do prune out things in the teen years, yes, their wiring is off, if you were wondering, and I'm sure you know all about that. Uh, and just as we go along that your peak years, and I just chatted with two ladies, Sarah and Peach, right? Did I get it right? Okay, yeah. I told her to go into nutrition, don't you think, with the name Peach? I'm thinking of taking it. Uh, that your great years of thinking of maximum brain capacity, age 22 to 27. It's done. Okay. All right. Let's all leave and go get some, some fries. But it's not quite. So what starts to happen as we go through our adulthood and go into old age, our brain changes dramatically. And the question is, how fast is it going to change for all of us? Can we do something with our diet? Uh, to make it change. And when we look at, um, and I thought I'd show it this way, number one, I'm gonna raise my hand, I never could hula hoop when I was a kid. And I think, oh, I have this to look forward to. What, how many of you are hula hoopers? Did you get that down? Okay, okay, you're very proud of it. I just couldn't. Okay, <laughs> that's, oh, it's the hips. I, okay, so this is showing you just as far as I, different, fractions of the IQ test that we, our abilities do decline. So that's, that's real. And I don't want to be depressing about all the things that go on and discuss in a lot of detail about dementia and Alzheimer's, not much at all. But we know that what I want to make a point of is the rates are increasing dramatically. And I know you must know that one, we're an aging population, but we're looking at the numbers globally, currently over 35 million tripling by the year 2050. And what I think is very important is this change that's happened recently, since 1980 to 2010, by one measure of statistics translated through CDC, Center for Disease Control, there's been a 55-fold increase in age-adjusted death rate from Alzheimer's. 55-fold, what's going on? What the heck is going on? And a lot of people want to think it's due to a toxin in the water or contaminant in food, and that's an, easy, that's an easy answer. We could fix that. Really, the bigger picture has to do with our lifestyle 
and how, starting today, how we decide to be for the rest of the years, no matter what age we are. So what I'd like to do is get us to think about, is there really a food-brain aging connection? Of course, I wouldn't be here if there wasn't, so we know there is. Can we do something, and what do we need to think about to help slow that decline that's inevitable? Don't believe that it's not going to happen. Though I saw this, maybe some of you saw a truly fascinating show on super geniuses. Uh, Albert Einstein, and I have forgotten past that point who else was part of the show. But they talked about Albert Einstein's brain and how different it was, and you could probably comment much better about it. But you know, given those unusual cases, it is inevitable that our brain will shrink in size, neurons will die, and that we'll have some changes. So we'll talk about um, if we can slow aging. And uh, what I'm more interested in is when we leave this room and you start to choose food, starting with this knowledge, what are you going to choose? Are you going to keep your brain in mind? What do you What do you keep in mind now when you make food choices? You can answer. Convenience cost. Time. Are we talking heart health or anything like this here? No? Okay. Am I talking to the wrong crowd? <laughs> okay. Well, I'll convince you by the end. So we're going to look a little bit at a meal plan. All right. So let's think, and this is through research done with populations over years. Brain research is catching up to what we know about heart health and other organs in the body. But if we look at, we know that keeping your brain active, learning things continuously. We know exercise. We can debate on how many minutes most days of the week that you're doing that, but that's important for blood flow and brain health. Getting quality sleep at night is very important. And this is, again, gathered through reams of data. General health, and we have the plate of food just thrown in there, and people talk about eating healthy uh, and maintaining healthy blood pressure as well as cholesterol levels. But we know specifically that hypertension, uh, that there may be some connection with dementia and cognitive decline. So it's important to look at that. So, And lastly, stress. Can't be good. It'd be great if we had a stress-free life, not in this day and age. And for everybody, we have different reasons about things that, that stress us. So that's collectively, and maybe in some of the other presentations, you went over some of that. OK, so there's what may impact brain aging. Let's just take a look at something you probably know a lot about personally that you're striving for as we get older. What's the leading cause of death in the US? Heart attacks, heart, cardiovascular disease. Okay, so if I asked all of you what are some factors that impact heart health, what would you tell me? Hypertension. Hypertension. Lack of exercise. Lack of exercise. Obesity. Obesity. Okay. Diet. Smoking. Diet. Okay. So there's, there's a theme here. We know that exercising most days of the week, we again can debate on time, uh, may help prevent heart disease as well as sleeping, quality sleep. Diet, maintaining healthy blood pressure, blood cholesterol. We know specifically that healthy glucose uh, blood levels preventing type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. Type 1 diabetes is another story, represents uh, roughly 5 to 10% of the people in the US that have diabetes. We're talking about the later onset, not so late in our population these days, but, but that aspect. And then stress. So there's, there's some overlap, right? OK, so 
what's interesting about this is I want you to think, and we're going to go over this, is, is eating for a healthy brain really, would it surprise you if it's that much different than eating for a healthy heart? No? Okay, so we're done. No, we're going to go through, <laughs> we're going to go through the stuff. But there are some differences, but I want you to think it's not that mysterious. And I know people want to fix and want to supplement and want to make it something magical, but it's, it is, the good thing is, it's simple. It's you're in control. You can do some things to help yourself. So what I want us to do before I talk about the diet is I want to learn about type 2 diabetes. Do you? Yeah. And insulin resistance, that's what we're going to do. It's sort of a weird term, right? Insulin resistance, what are we really talking about? We're going to go through some basics on it. I think it will be helpful. Uh, we know that people with Alzheimer's and, and dementia have very uh, similar characteristics to people with type 2 diabetes. In fact, with type 2 diabetes, your risk for dementia is greatly increased. We see some similarities. And if you're wincing because, ooh, I just got diagnosed with that, or I know I have elevated blood sugar levels, let's get a handle on it. You can take charge. You can do some things that will make a difference for yourself. We know that there are millions of Americans with type 2 diabetes, unfortunately, people not getting diagnosed. 40% of the people born right now will develop type 2 diabetes. What does that say about connection with Alzheimer's and what we'll see down the road? Dramatic increase in numbers. So we're, we're headed in the wrong direction on this. So I want to talk about how our body metabolizes carbohydrates, just how we process them. Don't worry, we're not going too deep into this, but I want you to have a visual so that when you choose foods, it will make sense for what goes on inside of you. These are, how would you categorize these carbohydrates besides reading the word unrefined carbohydrates? Would you say these are healthy ones? We have whole grains, potatoes, some green, I don't have everything that's a healthy carbohydrate, a little bit of fruit down there and the bananas. These are called unrefined carbohydrates. We haven't processed, there are some exceptions. I would kick that pasta out, but that was the picture I could get. Okay, then there are these. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Yum. Okay, I know. We all like this stuff. We all like this stuff. But we have, you know, pizzas here, cinnamon rolls. I can confess, those are my absolute favorite foods. I will go to great lengths to get one. So just so you know, that was a hint. Um, all these foods contain, some of them contain added sugar, but refined um, grain products. There's a difference. There's we're going to generalize. There's a difference the way the body metabolizes them. They both have the same basic molecular unit, a basic sugar unit called glucose. And we're going to watch how that gets inside the body and um, what happens when the way it gets inside doesn't work very well. So I want to introduce you to insulin. Insulin is a hallroom monitor. Picture an elementary school. Okay, we have a bunch of little kids running around the glucose. That's the basic unit of carbohydrate. You've eaten a bite of pizza, a bowl of pasta, some candy, or some potato, whatever it is. And to get glucose inside a muscle cell, a blood cell, other cells in your body, it can't just walk right in. It needs insulin to knock on the receptor of the cell and say, hey, I got, I got some kids that need to get into this room. So they can do the job such as providing fuel for that, that cell. And if your insulin and receptor are working well, the door hears the insulin knocking, 
glucose gets in and it gets to do its job. For people who have healthy blood sugar control, this is what's going on. And if we look at, if we um, look at time zero, you eat a meal, we see your blood sugar level starting out in a fasted state below 100. It rises in response to eating. The insulin is ushering glucose into the cells. Fair enough? Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so now what happens to someone who the insulin is pounding on the door and the receptor doesn't hear it? It doesn't work very well. It's not sensitive to insulin. It's not hearing the knock. Variety of reasons we'll talk about. Diet, genetics, other lifestyle factors. So with the receptor not responding, the pancreas, who's responsible, uh, organ to release insulin gets the signal, hey, we still have a lot of glucose. A lot of these kids out in the hallway, uh, they're, they're going to be trouble if we don't get them in the cell. And so insulin's desperately working at it. The cells actually on the inside think they're starving. They're not getting the energy they're supposed to. They're telling the brain, hey, eat more. In the meantime, you have all these kids running around in your hallways, which is not good, right? Any of you former teachers or current teachers or parents, or you just know this is not going to be good, right? That they're roaming around. So eventually, with the pancreas straining, and there are lots of steps I'm skipping, but eventually the glucose gets in. But we have blood sugar level that's up. We have a lot of kids running in the hallway. So there was our normal blood sugar curve. Here's our someone who is insulin resistant and it develops to technically being type 2 di diabetic, and they have a higher fasting blood sugar level. More kids are running in the hallways. And then when they eat, it goes up, and it doesn't come back down to where it should. So you think, oh, so what? So I have a lot of kids running around in my hallway. Really? Let's think about it. What happens? If you had a bunch of children, pleasant little well-behaved children, in the hallways, your blood vessels, what do you think would happen? What was that? They're enlarged vessels and small. What would kids do un, unsupervised? They'd get unruly. So that excess glucose is problematic. They're going to have a good time. They're going to rip the wallpaper, spray paint. They're going to damage your blood vessels. The excess glucose is very serious. That's why people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes want to be in good blood sugar control because this excess glucose leads to cardiovascular disease. We know it causes inflammation, a word we hear about. Just things, think of things irritated, uh, just not being in the state that they, calm state that they should be. And glucose, as well as many other factors, relate to that. Just threw in one thing, people start to lose blood vessel function, may lose vision, they lose circulation in limbs, and we know what bad things can happen. But we also know things go on in blood vessels up in your brain. So that's important. Type 2 diabetes, insulin-resistant precursor, type 2 diabetes is very common. It's happening in teenagers, in 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40, 50. It's not inevitable. You can do something about it. And there's lots that's related. So I just want to show you a Venn diagram. Here's type 2 diabetes. A lot of the symptoms don't worry too much about the names, but I just want to point out that oftentimes people are obese. They have excess body fat, 
as we mentioned, high blood sugar levels. If we measured, there's a way that you can get different fluid levels or blood levels or markers of inflammation, showing there's a lot of irritation in your blood vessels, inflammatory markers. We could also look for signs of oxidative stress. I know that sounds fancy. We're going to talk about antioxidants and get a better understanding of those. So just hold the thought, like, what the heck is that? Think of little fires that somebody's setting in the carpet or in your books are just ruining things. <laughs> we, we don't want that to happen. Uh, we know that with the um, impaired insulin signaling, there's just issues, um, low levels of an antioxidant, vitamin C. Well, let's see what we see in Alzheimer's disease. We have some characteristic proteins that change and build up and neuron loss on those other ends. But when we put the two together, we see a lot of similarity. And if we want to approach doing something about cognitive decline and development of dementia and Alzheimer's, we need to do something about type 2 diabetes. Because if a person in their 40s is showing marginally elevated levels of blood sugar fasted whew, in 10 years, maybe higher, in 20, you know, we go on and we'll see that person maybe in their 70s would develop dementia. And Potentially, you know, that's the, the experts that would define whether it was early or not. But insulin resistance, that insulin not being heard as it's knocking, so many factors. I'm just spewing out some. Of course, genes play a role, but it depends what diet you eat. Yes, excess carb consumption, but there are many other factors. Good things that you might be missing in your diet. Having chronic illness. Uh, in Inflammation is that funny word, just again, think of things being irritated in your body, uh, that we can do things with our diet to calm that. Different types of fats, different vegetables, items in your diet. And I know we want to look to supplements, but I want to urge you first, let's talk about diet. Exercise. We don't give exercise enough attention when it comes to this metabolic disorder. Right? <laughs> exercise, actually, your body needs less insulin if you exercise routinely. If you go on walks most days of the week that last 30 to 45 minutes, your body's basically the cells will uptake the glucose. Those little kids get in the classroom with less insulin on board. Sensitivity is improved. You can actually, at early stages of insulin resistance type 2 diabetes, do something about it. Okay, so those are just some of the things. Let's now start talking about food, right? I gotta get there. Okay, and we're here. What comes to mind when you, somebody talks about a he heart healthy diet? There's plant-based plant diet, so eating a lot of uh, vegetables, vegetables anything that's plant. Mediterranean diet. That's gotten a lot of press. I think that's great that you mentioned that. Mediterranean diet, bingo, uh, is one that we know over, we have decades of research showing that people through observational studies who generally eat more plant-based, they include seafood. I'm going to show more and, and talk more, so it's kind of an eye squinter. But it's just showing you that, you know, on the top of the pyramid, we have meats and sweets, and we're not going to eat a lot of those very infrequently. Sorry. Uh, and then as we move down, you have more frequent consumption. You get olive oil and nuts and fruits and veggies. And we know that observational studies were not putting people on these diets, but saying, hey, you've lived 10, 20 years. This group of people has not been eating this. 
this way and we see differences in type 2 diabetes risk, lower with this diet, lower risk of heart disease, and guess what? Lower risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. So there's, there's quite a bit to it. <clears throat> so pretty food, right? Does it look delicious to you other than the raw fish? <laughs> okay. So these are just a few of the foods from the Mediterranean diet and another health-boosting diet called the DASH diet, Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. And this diet is also plant-based. It does include some meat, but many servings of fruits and vegetables. Both of these diet plans include a decent amount of fruit and vegetables. And a variety of researchers over the past handful of years, not as many years as we've known about Mediterranean diet and, and the DASH diet, have come up with the MIND diet. And I'm just so fortunate we're at the MIND Institute with this diet. You know, it just works out well. It's a Mediterranean DASH intervention for neurogenerative delay. So this is pulling from the research studies what particular foods showed the best correlation with decrease in dementia risk and other markers for onset of Alzheimer's. Rather than, oh, it's a Mediterranean diet, that's the way to go. Actually, some of the research showed really no fruit shows much in the way of positive effects except berries. Just so far, this is where, where the research is. So that's, that's interesting. So what I want to do is talk about the MIND diet we're going to learn about it. We're going to start seeing how we can eat those foods. I'll show you a menu plan. And you ready for it? So this is a diet that what are we after? We're going to lower our likelihood of developing or curbing insulin resistance type 2 diabetes. It's going to be good for your heart and good for your brain. OK, so let's go. What's on the MIND diet? Having whole grains. Now, I don't mean eating wheat bread. What I mean is eating wheat berries, eating these whole grains that you go to the, most grocery stores will sell bags of farro, brown rice, black rice, wild rice. That's what I'd like you to do. The finely milled grains, even though they're wheat bread and it says 100% wheat, they get into your bloodstream rather quickly. And we know that there's evidence that a diet that has many foods that lead to quick release of those little students in your blood vessels may lead to insulin resistance in susceptible people down the road. Now, this is not difficult, and maybe some of you are doing this. Eat at least one dark leafy green salad or steamed veggie a day. I know some of you, oh, I already do this. Well, good, good. Maybe you're already helping yourself. And at least one other colorful vegetable that day. Okay, that's, and we'll talk about why those things. Berries, at least twice a week. And frozen is as good as fresh, okay? Don't worry about, there are no blueberries in season. It's not a big deal. You just get frozen. They're just as good. We'll talk about why they're beneficial. At least one one-ounce serving of nuts per day. So we're looking at things like walnuts and almonds and pistachios, not chocolate-covered macadamia nuts. I'll get, I'll get to chocolate in a little while, but not quite, or peanut brittle. Beans, how many of you are doing this? At least every other day. This is a biggie I find a lot of people aren't doing. Anybody doing that, or are we just silent taking notes? And... Black beans, good. Only in the winter time. 
Okay, well, that's a good use of them. We'll talk about how to do it, but can you put beans out of a can on a salad? That's easy enough, and it counts. Good, okay. All right, poultry at least twice a week. Okay, I know you're all gonna clap on this one, but it's one, one five-ounce glass. <laughs> and you cannot save them for Friday and have seven. Doesn't work. I always have to tell the college students that when we talk about what's moderate drinking, it still hasn't sunk in, okay? But if you don't enjoy wine, you can drink pomegranate juice or dark grape juice, not sweetened. So those still count. They have the compounds. Fish at least once a week, preferably twice. We'll talk about the benefits of that. Okay, here come the limits. Are you ready? I'll go through them in detail. Okay, you have to limit to um, saturated fats. Choose olive oil instead of margarine or butter. So that means other saturated fats. So from meats that, have, that are high, like um, beef, that are high in saturated fat, we're going to eat not very much of that. Cheese, yes, you're seeing the word cheese. Sorry. <laughs> oh, let's all mourn. Okay, <laughs> we have to go. <laughs> Fried food, we'll, t we'll discuss about how my theory on how we can work with the cheese limit, but we're trying to watch the type of fat that you're eating, okay, the type of fat. And then finally, for some people, they have something and less than, so, five, times less than five times a week. Wow. Okay, some people do it twice a day. Oh, is this too little? No, it's a lot. Well, for a lot of people, it is... I look at food logs all, all day long and agree they're younger people, but they eat something sweet at every meal and it might be their entire meal and they drink, this includes sweetened beverages and everything. So it's basically limiting you to less than the 50 grams of added sugar that's a daily value that nobody comes close to that I see. So that would mean no sweetened yogurt, things like that. Okay, so some of the research, there are different people who have investigated diet and cognitive decline, but um, Dr. Morris, at the time from Rush University, looked at observationally at age 58 to 98 year olds from anywhere from two to 10 years, average close to five years. And they followed one of these three diets. And what they were interested in is not forcing them to eat something, but just they constantly questioned them about how they were following the, their, their eating style to keep track of the different types of foods. So they were categorized as following the Mediterranean, which has much more fruit, which is different. It, it's somewhat different than the MIND diet. Same with DASH diet, a lot more vegetables than what this is prescribing. And they also uh, did a variety of different um, cognitive assessments over the time period that they followed them. And what's important to note is all three diets worked. If they followed them really well, all three diets over the time span they were uh, studying a 50% or so uh, risk reduction in developing Alzheimer's in that age group. So it was positive. But what only the MIND diet resulted in, which it emphasized certain foods, like you're gonna eat fruit, you're gonna eat berries. I'm not saying don't eat a banana, but that was what they emphasized. So. Um, that even if they modestly followed it, they weren't the greatest at following it. So they, they were on it, but they slipped up, like a lot of us probably would. They still had a risk reduction. People who followed the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, 
that were kind of following it, no risk reduction. So it was kind of nice that they weren't, uh, they were observing the outcome on this rather than making them follow a certain plan. So let's go through the groups and talk about what's so great about them. Um, and green leafy vegetables, kind of ways that you can, can eat them and maybe you can share your ways. This is really where we got to start. 